The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Unicredit posts a first quarter net profit of 2.1 billion euros, driven by revenue growth of over 56%. We'll be speaking to the CEO, Andrea Orsell, at 8.10 CET. That will be the first on CNBC. BNP Paribas posts first quarter operating income of 2.8 billion euros, beating forecasts. CFO Lars Machinel tells CNBC, Europe's banks are not under stress. If you look at the application of supervision in the U.S., it's basically done in a similar way as in Europe for the large banks. Yeah? Whereas in Europe, it's basically done for all set of banks. And that is why there is absolutely uh, no uh, systemic risk in Europe. Morning all. Let's uh, get into some of the other headlines here. First Republic's rescue fails to stem the sell-off in regional bank stocks with PacWest and Western Alliance leading losses pulling Wall Street into the red. European leaders give their blessings as chipmaker Infineon starts production at a new 5 billion euro facility in Dresden, tapping into funds from the EU Chips Act, Infineon CEO telling CNBC Europe must stand up to global competition. It's not about striving for self-sufficiency, but rather um, reducing one-sided dependency and what is really important that Europe also invests into R&D because semiconductor industry doesn't stand still. So, uh, very good morning, everybody. Let's uh, kick off. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Welcome back. Thank you very much indeed. A uh, little bit of jet lag, but I'm sure we'll work through this. The coffee will help here. I'm glad one of you made it back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Steve probably made it back, but I've heard nothing up to this stage. So fingers <laughs> crossed, eh? Uh, let's talk about the uh, Unicredit numbers here. So uh, the group calling this a record quarter in terms of the figures they've delivered. The uh, uh, group delivering a, um, a 2.1 billion net profit here, ROTE of 20.4%, which looks pretty punchy given the current environment and the delivery we've seen from other banks in this space. Net revenue growth then of 56.5% year on year. The group says this was driven by commercial momentum in all key lines with um, NII of 3.3 billion and fees of 2 billion. And that NII number I think is interesting because we're obviously looking at how banks are benefiting from the uh, opportunity around interest rates. So further cost and risk-weighted assets reduction resulting in a cost income ratio of 39.2%. Net revenues on risk-weighted assets of 7.7%, which they say achieves uh, exceptional positive operating and capital leverage at this point. Uh, Tangible book value uh, per share of 28.46. That's up 21.7%. And they're giving us improved guidance on net profit for full year 2023 of 6.5 billion euros. Um, There are plenty more numbers in here, but I don't want to steal Jamana's thunder because I know she's been combing over the details as well here. And Jamana, given that we are so sensitive at the moment to news flow from the banking sector, 
How would you analyse what Unicredit has to say and whether this ultimately is a bank that is delivering on the quarter? You know, I think many times on Squawk Box, you guys have had the conversation about whether you should focus on the macro and the micro. And the macro right now, given the price action that we saw and some of those banking stocks emanating from the U.S. yesterday, a little bit tricky. And definitely these are questions that I will be putting to the CEO, Andrea Orsel, in, in an hour's time when we speak to him. But I think the micro in this circumstance continues to be a story of strength, Jeff. And uh, just to give you context, in terms of price performance, the stock is up more than 30% year to date. The SX7E, the European Bank Stock Index, is up only about three percentage points. I'm just giving you those numbers to give you a feeling for just how much Unicredit, Unicredit stock has outperformed this year. A lot of strength still coming through in these numbers. A net interest income, 3.3 billion euros. The wording on that, the outlook for net interest income for the rest of the year is going to be key. One other notable feature, obviously, from the earnings season this year is that even though many of these banks have actually produced results in line with market expectations, it's often been the guidance and what they said about the rest of the year that has uh, caught investors' attention. And there is a view out there that for many of these banks, we are at peak earnings potential, either because the ECB are getting close to the end of the hiking cycle or because going forwards, we are going to start to see a bit more distress in the system and more competition on deposits. This is another point that uh, people will sort of dig into the details and, and wonder about Unicredit, because versus their peers, they're a little bit more reliant on corporate deposits versus retail deposits, which tend to be more fickle. And it will be interesting to see whether they feel the need to start raising those deposit rates in a bid to keep them or start uh, offering more attractive alternatives. All of that, of course, could eat into the net interest income later on in the year. But the one major feature of Unicredits and which really stands them out from the rest is that CET1 ratio, even adjusted for the share buyback that they've uh, agreed to pay out for 2022 and 2023, they've got a CET1 ratio of 16% percentage points. Recently, they got a stamp of approval from the ECB to go ahead with that very substantial uh, share buyback. They have committed to a policy of distributing 100% of their profits to shareholders. Very attractive. They also got uh, recently approval from the ECB to buy back those 81 bonds. Remember, 81s right at the center of the storm around the time of the Credit Suisse uh, UBS crisis. Unicredit were in such a strong position that the supervisor actually gave them permission to write their own, sorry, to buy their own 81 bonds back. So their capital position is very strong. And this is why many people are saying that potentially Unicredit could be in acquisition mode. One of the names that comes up is BPM. We obviously spoke a lot about Montepaschi last year. That deal didn't go through. BPM is the bank that lots of people over here, a lot of papers have been talking about the potential for Andrea Orsel to actually go ahead, deploy all that capital that they're sitting on, and perhaps think about a bit of uh, domestic M&A. So certainly a question I will be putting to him. Let's see if we get an answer, Jeff. Yeah, well, let's see how sweet the deal is. I mean, let's face it, after what UBS got Credit Suisse for and what JP Morgan just got First Republic for, Andrea Orsel is probably hoping, hoping that he'll get a sweetheart deal uh, for some of this uh, deal making. But I've got a different question for you, Jamana, and you opened um, on the macro. And I think that is very interesting here because no bank operates in isolation of the economy. And the ECB bank lending data for the first quarter was worse than expected. It shows that the credit officers are in 
uh, no mode when it comes to a, a lot of uh, loan extending at this point here. So how bold is it of Unicredit to lift its guidance at this stage when, quite frankly, none of us really know what's going to happen in the second half of the year here? And if there is very little loan growth happening in the banking sector, then quite frankly, the European economies may have stalled. And we're talking Unicredit this morning. We're talking BNP Paribas. We'll get Charlotte on that bank in just a moment here. But I can't help but feel it seems premature to go with a raised guidance when you don't know what's going to happen to the eurozone economy in the second half. Yeah, and I think what's also interesting about this report card that came out is their cost of risk is extremely low. It's only about eight basis points. Remember, if you're going back exactly one year, we were around the beginning of the Russian war in Ukraine, and a lot of businesses had to make big business decisions on the back of that. So compared year-on-year basis, there's a bit of... um, there's some base effects, so to speak, uh, that, that one has to bear in mind. But looking ahead, it doesn't seem like they are concerned about provisioning, about a potential deterioration on their loan portfolio. Indeed, they're provisioning uh, on the commercial real estate book, which is an area that comes up a lot. as something that investors point to. They certainly have a little bit more commercial real estate exposure than other European banks. But again, as I mentioned, LTVs are healthy. Provisioning is healthy. But the exposure to Germany is, is definitely something that people are thinking about. And I think if you think about the macro and the broader context of what's been happening with the U.S. regional banks, a lot of that in the U.S. has stemmed from some of these banks' Uh, sensitivity to interest rates, which is something that supervisors over here have a stronger hold on. Uh, The other thing is deposit outflows. And and this is, I guess you could say, uh, an issue that so far seems to be quite specific to the U.S. because the deposits are leaving smaller U.S. regional banks, going to bigger regional banks, or going into money market funds. We don't have quite the same structure in Europe. You don't really have that money market fund philosophy. And if you look at the deposit rates, yes, they started to drop down a little bit over the first three months of the year. But over the last 12 months, there's still been a massive influx of deposits. So if there is a smoking gun, it will probably be either in the deposit space or in commercial real estate. Again, Jeff, you're writing my interview for me. Sounds terrific. And we're looking forward to that interview as well, Jamana. Thank you so much for that. Ten past eight Central European time. We will hear from the head of Unicredit. Just picking through the BNP Paribas numbers, and we've got a beat on a couple of these lines, this on net profit and also on revenue. So starting with the first quarter net profit, 4.4 billion euros, a tad above the 4.3 that analysts had penciled in. In terms of the revenue, 12.03 billion Again, slightly above the 11.98 that analysts had seen. In terms of the CET1 ratio, that stands at 13.6% at the end of the first quarter. First quarter liquidity coverage ratio, 139%. Now, these numbers today are profit more than doubling effectively in that first quarter. This has been bolstered by one-off here, the sale of the U.S. retail division. And it's just worth pointing out the securities trading. That revenue edged down 1.8%. But that was certainly better than what we saw at some of the other major banks, where it's been a pretty difficult period of trading for some of the peers. Well, Charlotte has more. And Charlotte, uh, similar questions to you, where we are very much watching all the commentary on liquidity positions, how banks like this are faring, when we've got other regional banks, in some cases global banks, under pressure in recent weeks. How do you think BNP has managed to ride the wave? 
Yeah, what you're saying, the numbers are a little bit better than expected there for BNP Paribas, <coughs> quite solid. Distributed net income at 2.8 uh, billion. You say uh, the, the overall number boosted by the, the, the sale of the US unit Bank of West that they finalized just in February for $16 billion. But looking at the different parts of the business, their commercial and personal banking part of the business that has their, their retail business, particularly in France, they're quite resilient with revenue up almost 6% in that part of the business. CIB up 4%. You, you gave a little bit of the detail there. Uh, FIC up 9% and equities are 19%. So similar picture to what we've seen in previous quarters and also in other uh, banks. But there, uh, again, all resilient operating expenses, of course, higher, uh, higher costs there, but still an underlying positive jaws effect. Cost of risk down 1.4%. So 28 basis point CT ratio, 13.6%. Uh, so all of all, uh, quite resilient set of numbers there for BNP Paribas. And I had a chance to catch up with the CFO of the bank and we discussed about the results of the bank. Indeed, very solid Q1 results, which basically formed the bedrock of BNP Paribas' ambitious growth trajectories. And basically on all lines, even you mentioned revenues, but intrinsic revenues were up by 5.3%. A company in cost, excluding in particular IFRIC taxes, lead to positive jaws effects of 1.5 points. And as you know, the group has a solid balance sheet, Cost of risk remains low at 28 basis points over outstanding. Common equity T1 stood at 13.6%. And as announced in February, we introduced income labeled distributable, representing our intrinsic performance and forming the basis going forward. All figured mentions are in this concept. Hence, a bottom line clocking in at 2.8 billion euros and an earnings per share of 2.19 euros, an 18 1.8% annualized growth rate. Basically, it is the performance of our businesses generating this strong intrinsic growth. Growth up 4% at CPBS, at CIB, sorry, and CPBS 6% and IPS 0.6%. And all this leads to the 5%, 5.3% growth of the group I mentioned earlier. So that's basically, in a nutshell, the strength of the delivery at BNP Paribas. So you just mentioned the performance of your different divisions. So let's try to drill in a little bit into that. So uh, particularly we're looking at your commercial and personal banking and services. I think from analysts we're expecting in this quarter that strong non-French net interest income would help offset some weaker ones, some of the weaker French retail net interest income. But it looks like they were both quite resilient. Yes, indeed. Let's not forget. I mean, if you look at CPBS, so our commercial and personal private banking services, they are really serving our clients with a diverse set of products. And if you look at it, you really saw a very strong commercial momentum, a good momentum for the commercial banks and strong performance of the specialized businesses, in particular if you take Arval or Carfleet leasing. But not only that, also look at the steep increase in client acquisition in our new activities, like Hello Bank, up 39%, or Nickel, up 26%. So that is why, all in all, the CPBS had a very strong performance with 6% revenue uptick. Uh, looking at CIBC revenue up 4%, so again, we're still fake performing well, of course, high interest rate there up 9% and equities down 19.5%. Again, similar picture to what we've seen in previous quarters. Do you see these similar trends to continue for the rest of this year? Listen, our, our main impact is that we have now the full set of services in CIB and we are there to serve clients. 
we are solid like uh, basically no one else and so we are there to serve and therefore we are present and therefore you see the pickup that you have seen in CIB overall and so we are there to continue to serve and continue to have our market share stepping up. And that was Lars Machinil, the CFO of BNP Paribas. So the bank also reconfirmed some of the targets that they'd given in February, including expecting net income to grow by more than 9% per year uh, to 25. It was 7% previously. And a return of tangible equity above 12% by 25. Again, some of those targets they've given in February already reconfirming. And we also talked about, uh, of course, the situation that banks have been going through over the past couple of months. And uh, he said there were no systemic risk in Europe for European banks. We'll talk about the French economy after that downgrade so we'll bring you more of this interview in the next hour Charlotte, thank you very much for that. I'm just walking over to take you to uh, what the other major banks did stateside as we uh, just stretch our coverage from the European picture to what's taking place on Wall Street. And you can see it was, again, stress on the back of First Republic. We had the message that this crisis has really been put behind us now as we've seen the wind-up of First Republic. Those comments from JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon uh, about 24 hours ago. And what we saw on the major banks and the trading pattern yesterday, many now concerned that investors will pick through the next weakest link in the banking system. So you could see it was again another reversal for the major banks done 3% for Bank of America, 3.8 down on Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, City all reversing, JP itself down 1.6%. But it was the regional banks where we saw the most stress. Investors, again, just pouring over these. And don't forget some of these names had tried to be part of the solution, putting in bids to buy First Republic. Uh, PacWest down 27.7%. Western Alliance Bank down more than 30%. Big uh, falls, uh, 15%, I should say, to 30.93. A fairly significant falls here, 10% down on Zion. You can see across the board over to uh, other major banks dotted across the United States that there was a reversal investors just took stock. The other big leg here is the commercial real estate portfolio. What exactly are these banks sitting on beyond the broader concerns already in the market here around uh, some contagion fears? U.S. markets themselves, well, it was a day in the red too. We're down 1% on the Dow, S&P reversing, and you can see the Nasdaq down 1%. A cautious odd start to the trading week as the Fed gets going on its two-day policy meeting widely expected to again lift interest rates but i think uh, many just uh, had that big question as to what comes next will we be cutting by later this year and what will this do in terms of further credit tightening for an economy that may still be weathering the impact from credit tightening in the banking sector are we looking at a downturn here in terms of the economy uh, the u.s futures the early futures picture today suggesting a little bit more green on the boards from where we wrapped up the trade yesterday we're looking slightly firmer on the dow more than 50 points to the upside slim ranges on the s p and on the nasdaq this stage so a big fed day the federal reserve is expected to deliver a quarter point rate rate hike in what would be its 10th consecutive rate increase in just over a year a 20 25 basis point move higher would take the benchmark Fed funds rate to a new target range of 5 to 5.25 percent. That is the highest level since mid 2007. But ultimately, it shouldn't cause too much reaction in markets unless there is something extraordinary in the tone coming out of the Fed, given that everybody seems to have bought into the idea that this is uh, 25 basis points and then we worry about what comes next. But 
inevitably it doesn't seem to be the Fed that's causing the nervousness in the markets. It's, Karen, what you just reported on, which is those declines in bank share prices. I didn't really see anybody conclusively nail why the nervousness. It just feels like that woozy sense of unease that comes with trying to forecast what the hit to the banks particularly the regional banks, is going to be going forward if we get regulation shifts here that are going to involve uh, higher regulatory uh, costs, uh, a reduction in the amount that they can lend out, obviously a reduction in risk-weighted assets, um, a decline perhaps in the work of the loan officers. The deposit flight story, well, I mean, Jamie Dimon seems to think it's largely contained at this stage, or at least that's what he was saying yesterday. I think as uh, the international community looked at the story around the United States, it felt like it had gone quiet for a number of weeks. But the reality is behind the scenes around First Republic, bankers working extraordinarily hard trying to ensure that the numbers look good. So we get to the reporting date last week, and the reality was that the numbers were not good enough. And I think that First Republic was just standing there as a buffer. Everybody was eyeing what would happen to it, what would come next, would it survive? And the reality is it didn't. And that has, again, just challenged the narrative. At this bank, that was seen as a very solid performer that, in fact, for, for a number of years, caused envy among the major Wall Street banks that they could woo those high-end clients. If this is a bank that could fail in this type of market environment, what does it mean for the other major uh, lenders across various regions? And we're talking about very similar size market cap here. If there's a crisis of confidence, do they have the ability to uh, keep their business models going at this stage? Uh, you know, we heard the defence from First Republic. It was a business model that weathered all types of environments. It didn't. I think that's the question now, as you've got many of these regional lenders that have also been lending out to office blocks, local shopping centres. I mean, this is the first lender in many of these regions. And we keep on hearing, uh, you know, in broad brushstrokes, so there's a problem with commercial real estate. Well, who is behind that problem? Is it the regional banks? Some of these lenders that we're talking about, is there more than just a sentiment issue here? And I think that's what investors are still raking over at this point. Uh, and I haven't even mentioned the bigger issue that if we've now got bulking up and already there's some griping that it was JP Morgan that was part of the solution. We're coming up to a presidential election year. Do we start to retest the theory about too big to fail and bank, do banks again have uh, the pressure coming their way, whether it's around regulation, around size? Uh, you know, it feels like we're going into a very heated environment around the banks again. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think any of the uh, parties want to make uh, banks a political issue because usually they don't res those stories don't resonate well on the doorstep with voters. And the Republicans, they probably don't want to talk about it too much because it was under Trump that some elements of Dodd-Frank were rolled back to allow these regional banks to improve, quote, improve their liquidity and allow them to lend more. Well, now we are starting to think about the ramifications of that yet again. And the Democrats, I'm not sure they want to talk about it too much either, because the second half of the year still looks hard to call in terms of a recession. And I think the reality for this banking story is a lot of the selling is probably to do with the way the markets are trying to assess how these banks will fare if the US pitches into a poor recession. And look, the data didn't help, did it? We just had some JOLTS numbers out of the States. And what did the JOLTS tell us? It told us that for a third uh, reporting period, a third monthly fall in vacancies available. So the quit rate has gone down. So people are feeling less confident about their ability to tell the boss where to go and walk out the door. And the um, 
the layoffs rate rose effectively and the number of ava- uh, jobs available and being advertised also declined here. All of that continues to point to the idea that the jury is still out on whether we're having a recession and how deep that recession ultimately is going to be. But the data is eroding. Yeah, I mean, we had a wobble on markets as a result yesterday. I mean, it was a classic risk-off trade where investors go to sort of safe haven parts of the market concerned that we are talking about a policy error here. I mean, if we continue to still have sticky inflation, the Fed may still think it has a job ahead of it in terms of tackling core inflation. What have we got when it comes to those uh, rate cuts that are penciled into to various parts of the market? Um, just circling back to the banks, you know, I think there is a real concern stateside about the resolution process. We were raking over the coals around Credit Suisse and the UBS cleanup, whether that was the ideal scenario to have, see one huge bank created in Switzerland. I think similar issues stateside, that if this is a bank that was holding on to what, more than 10% of US deposits, this is JP Morgan, that each should become part of the solution. Those caps didn't matter in a deal like this, that there's no other way to clean up what is not meant to be a systemically important bank. I mean, what if there is a different bank in a different situation? And we're not talking about you know, very wealthy customers' deposits, something that is more sensitive in the electorate. You know, what happens? Are we talking about all US banks that are too big to fail now, that we need to have some solution that involves a major bank bulking up, which again makes the system less stable, you'd have to say, because you've got even bigger uh, banks that are too big to fail. I think it just provokes a lot of questions at this point. Uh, lots and lots of questions. Um, let me just tell you that PacWest, um, which we've been featuring this morning in our conversation because of that big decline yesterday, PacWest is actually up 2.4% in the after-hours trade. The story is covered in full on the website, so go and have a look at cnbc.com. PacWest falls more than 20% as regional bank stocks slide to new lows, but as I say, it is up 2.4% this morning. Uh, on the overnight session. Still to come on the programme, German lawmaker Julia Kluckner warns of the impact of EU bureaucracy. We will bring you that interview with that German politician from Geneva in just a moment. And for more on the banking results as well as the latest market action, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
We're back, everybody. French uh, Central Bank Governor and ECB Governing Council member Francois Villeroy de Gallo has labelled inflation a, quote, economic and social disease. In an interview with the uh, French Daily newspaper, a French Daily newspaper, de Gallo called for limited interest rate increases, noting that most of the effects from previous rate rises have yet to play out in the economy. However, he said he remains determined to continue the inflation fight for, quote, as long as necessary. Headline Eurozone inflation rose in April with flash data showing a 7% rise on the year that was in line with expectations and just above the levels of March. Core inflation did ease slightly to 5.6%. Steve caught up with the Bundestag member Julia Kluckner at the World Economic Forum's Growth Summit in Geneva. He asked her if the EU is working as well as it should be. No, it is not, because um, we have such a big mountain of bureaucracy, of documentation, uh, of, of duties for companies, and their, their real task is inventing, researching or producing things, not uh, documenta- uh, documenting the things. And uh, next year, the elections for the European Parliament, for example, um, um, will show us um, which solutions could be better. So it will be a competition of of ideas, of uh, political styles, of course. And I think um, um, the bureaucracy is the, the worst thing in the European Union. The bureaucracy is a problem, yes. but also the destination... And planning times took so long. And the destination of the bloc fiscally as well. Now, I've mm-hmm. been privileged to speak to Mr Gentiloni many times, yes. and I think there's many German politicians, and I'd imagine you included, who are very concerned about some of the proposals that he's putting forward to bring forward the Growth and Stability Pact into the 21st century. You are concerned, yeah? Yes, we are concerned. Why? Um, because you have to earn the money you want to spend. And we have uh, different uh, challenges. Look at the migration uh, uh, challenge. Uh, in Europe, Germany is one of the countries um, um, hosting a lot of migrations. And if we want a European solution, it's a question of money, of course, and it's a question of solidarity. And the same thing is the, the common defense question. It's the question of uh, the, the Green Deal and to transform our industry, for example, our economy. And then the stability of the European Union means that everybody has to, to be in a balance. Every, every country has to be in a balance, not only the one who pays for it and the others who spends it. Yeah, but you mentioned immigration there as well. When I talk to my friends down in Athens or down in Rome as well, they will say that they're not getting the support from Northern European uh, for the clear and present problems they have. They're saying the Northern European countries don't have this influx across the Mediterranean and they need more support. And if they don't get that support, then it's going to breed more populism. It's a geographical question, of course. It's uh, uh, what is the first country in the European Union you, you walk into, that's the one point, and the pressure is in the south of uh, the European Union, of course, and Germany is spending a lot of money, but we have to help them, to help them to, to host uh, uh, the people and uh, to defend on another way or on other hand the European Union. So the question of attraction and help 
This yeah. is not easy. Which sign we will send, for example, to, to Africa. So we want to help people, but we don't want to help the criminal uh, groups who, who, who are working or earning money with it. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.